All right, everyone, let's do this. Uh, I don't have any uh, questions set up, but if we could break up into groups of three and four, if we could just share just a praise, something that God has been doing that we can encourage one another with. Uh, Let's share maybe a testimony from this week, something that God is doing in your life. And uh, if you can't think of anything, you can go back a little bit, okay? Don't go back too far, but go back to the most recent praise report or something that the Lord's been doing. And if all else fails and you have nothing to praise God for, why did you come to church, okay? You could, no, literally, you could ask why, uh, you can answer why you came to church or what the reason was for coming to church, okay? All right, let's break up into groups three and four. Can we do that right now? And let's just kind of talk and share, and let's start out the time this way. All right, if I could get your attention back to the front. Amen. It's great to be able to talk and share. All right, everyone, if we could take our Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 21. Would you do that? Matthew chapter 21. If you have your devices, you can uh, look on from there. Uh, But we want to dive right into the Word of God. Um, From now, just so you know, until the end of the gospel, this whole section that we're going to be looking at, chapters 21 through 27, it's going to take us months to get through, but this time now we'll deal with one week, one week. We call it the Passion Week, and this is the last week of Jesus' life before he resurrects from the dead. Okay, so you know how in Matthew's gospel we've been studying that Jesus has been saying, my time has not yet come, right? My time has not yet come. Here he's healing people and he's telling them not to share with others, right, because his time hasn't come. He goes to areas uh, that are more secluded. He doesn't come right into Jerusalem in many ways because the, uh, the, what he's saying is my time has not yet come. Well, now, as we're studying this week, Jesus' time has come, okay? And last Sunday, Pastor Wilson did a great job teaching on the triumphal entry where Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And what I love about the triumphal entry and what I love about Matthew's gospel is he shares all kinds of prophecies from all these different prophets that are fulfilled through Jesus, right? And uh, Wilson went and talked about that and shared that. Well, now here Jesus is publicly announcing himself as Messiah, okay? And here he's entering on a donkey's colt. And I'm not going to go too much Uh, into the triumphal entry. Uh, Wilson did a great job with that. But what I want to do is I want to share with you that the first thing Jesus does publicly as Messiah when he enters Jerusalem is he goes straight to the temple. And that's where we're going to pick it up. Matthew chapter 21, I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. And let's look at the word of God. And Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and all the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Verse 16, Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus, and have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. Verse 17, and he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Okay, this is our passage, 
And I want us to look and unpack this, but before we do that, we've got to look at two things that we need to know before we look at the passage itself. Two things. Number one, we have to understand the temple. If you're taking notes, uh, and I always encourage you to take notes because I'll give a lot of stuff, okay? But here we see that the temple was the oldest place in all of Israel, okay? It was the most important thing that the Jews possessed. It was central to all Jews everywhere. It was central to their thinking. It was the center of Jewish life. So nothing, I mean nothing, was greater than the temple. There are synagogues, right? Anytime Jews uh, went, in, uh, went into communities, they would start synagogues. So there were many, many synagogues, places to, to uh, study the word of God and to, to meet together. But there was only one temple. And why was it so important? Because it was God's house. Throughout the Old Testament, even when the temple started out as a tabernacle, right? This mobile temple where God uh, would move around with his people. It was where God's glory always rested. It was where God's presence always resided. And so the Jews literally called the temple God's house. It was where men and women would meet and connect with the true and living God. So understand the temple. Number two, understand the Passover, okay? The Passover was the oldest, dearest celebration of the Jews. It was their 4th of July. It was their freedom celebration from the Egyptians, okay? And so with that celebration also came a sacrifice where they offered a lamb. Just as God had directed them way back in Exodus when he told them to take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorposts. So when the angel who was sent to a, a divine judgment on the Egyptians, when they would pass each house, they would see the blood of that lamb put on the doorpost and they would pass over and that's what the word came from. They would pass over the judgment that they had. And so the lamb, as we see, was literally a salvation to the Jewish people from judgment. So at Jesus' time now, every Jew that could would come to Jerusalem from every part of the civilized world. You had Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, Cappadocians, Pontans, Ossians, uh, Phrygians, Pamphylians, Egyptians, Libyans, Romans, Syrians, Grecians, Arabians, all the Jews from everywhere would congregate in Jerusalem during Passover. So that would mean that Jerusalem would swell with pilgrims, up to five times the population. So historians say roughly Jerusalem had about 100,000 inhabitants. Now during Passover, it would swell to half a million, if you can imagine. And they were all ready to participate in the sacrifice and in the celebration. Okay, you know those two things. The first thing that Jesus does as Messiah is that he goes into the temple during Passover. Let's look in verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Now when you read this, it's a little shocking, isn't it? Isn't it? It's a little surprising. Jesus goes into God's house at the busiest, most important time of the year, and he causes a scene. He causes a scene. And here the Bible says he drives out by force all the buyers and sellers. He turns over tables. He flips over benches. Mark records that he wouldn't even allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. He had it on lockdown the whole time. And it was a scandal, right? Now, think about this. It's shocking to us, right? 
And I, I think it's shocking because we've always seen Jesus as this kind and gentle soul. Here we see him, he comes to Jerusalem humbly and peacefully, riding a donkey's colt, right? right? He tells people to come to him so that they can find rest for their souls because he's gentle and humble in heart. Well, how do you reconcile that with the Jesus that we're studying today, who calls out people and throws out people by force? You know, in the 21st century culture, I think what we've done is we've created, right, a Jesus as a caricature. And you guys know what a caricature is, right? When you go to the zoo or you go to SeaWorld, you have those artists, they're sitting on those, you know, the, those little uh, 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 stools, and they'll, for money, they'll draw you, right? And I love that kind of stuff. I'm really into cartoons and stuff, and so I like getting drawn. And when I see the picture, I never expect a realistic picture, right? You know, this, this amazing person like I am, right? I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't expect that. I, I expect like a cartoon, goofy cartoon character, right? And caricatures aren't really us. They look like us in a sense, but they're exaggerated, right? They're out of proportion. Well, when we read the Gospels, we see that here we are presented with Jesus in truth. He's not a caricature. He was loving and he was holy. He was gentle and he was confrontational. He told the truth at all times because that's what he said he would do. He came to tell the truth and he did it even when it offended people. He invited the sinner to come just as they were, and he also demanded the hypocrites to repent right on the spot. You see, that's the Jesus that we see. So here's my question. Did Jesus have a right to do what he did? Did Jesus have a right to do what we just talked about, cause a scene, cause a scandal in the temple? You know, I love the prophets, and if we could turn there, the prophet Malachi right, before prophesied this. Do we have him up? Okay. Says this in Malachi chapter 3. And here's the prophecy. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. This is in reference to the Messiah. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? This is what's happening in the Gospels, right? Here, the Lord comes and it's what everybody is seeking. It's what everybody wants. It's what everybody desires. But when he comes, verse 2 says, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He's a, it's a different expectation than what they expected, right? And what will the Messiah do? Listen to this. For he will be like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap, right? Have you ever thought of Jesus? You've, thought, you've seen him as a refiner's fire, but did you also know he's launderer's soap? That's who he is. That's what the Bible says. It's the idea of professional cleaning, right? They had professional cleaners in the ancient world, and Jesus comes to clean. And in verse 3, it says, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier. You see, Malachi predicted that Messiah would come suddenly to his temple to clean house. And so the first point, if you're taking notes, is Jesus has the right to cleanse the temple. Write that down. Jesus has the right. Can we put that up there? to cleanse the temple. Can I get an amen? Amen? Yeah, do you believe that? Jesus has the right to cleanse the temple? Amen? Amen. Jesus has all authority to cleanse the house of God. Now why? Why did this house need cleaning? Well, let's look in verse 13. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The first reason that 
Jesus cleans the temple, if we could put that up right now, is that the temple was being profaned. The temple was being profaned. This was a place that was being violated, desecrated, disrespected, debased. In John chapter 2 and verse 16, Jesus says, Stop turning my father's house into a market. In the first century, the, the most powerful man in the temple, the power player, was a guy by the name of Annas. And he was, for a long time, the high priest of the temple. Now, after his tenure, he began to make all of his sons priests, high priests. So at different points, he got through all of his sons being the high priest. And after he had made his sons the high priest, he made his son-in-law high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. You guys know Caiaphas, right? We're going to study him later, right, when we're talking about Jesus' crucifixion. So here, Annas used nepotism bribery and politics to keep his family in power. And the biggest deal, and the one I want you to remember, is that Annas monopolized the buying and selling of necessities for the temple sacrifices. Annas was the one who created the marketplace, or what we call the bazaars of Annas. He didn't call them that, but people were so kind of bugged by it that they said these are the bazaars of Annas and his sons, where they sold and became extremely wealthy selling uh, things for temple sacrifices. Now, there's nothing wrong with buying things that you need for worship, right? And sacrifices. But by the time of Jesus, what had been done outside of the temple was brought into the temple courts. So Annas the high priest brought bazaars into the temple precinct. They had commercialized the house of God and ran it like a well-tuned religious machine, dispensing goods. And this well-attuned religious machine was indicative then of another, of another problem, ritualism. This religious system had reduced everything to rituals, religious rites. You see, the richness of what God had instituted in the temple and in his offerings and in his sacrifices and in his laws was intended for a relationship with God. See, God authored these rules and these sacrifices to allow sinful man and women to have a relationship with the holy God. This is what Jesus called a house of prayer. The purpose of the temple was to connect God, in, to connect God with men and women in relationship. But all in the temple now was reduced to rituals, rules, regulations, rites in and of themselves. And they were not connecting people with God. And it became a vain, empty, lifeless ritualism. So for this reason, the prophets prophesied, and I want you to see the prophet Amos and what he says. He says, I hate. When God starts off by saying, I hate, here there's a problem. He says, I hate. I despise your religious festivals, your assemblies. Uh, your, assembly, uh, your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Let's look at another prophet, the prophet Isaiah. Here's what he says. What is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Same thing that Jesus was facing, right? This trampling of my courts. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. 
new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. For I cannot endure, look at this, I cannot endure your sin and your solemn assembly. And this is why Jesus was so angry. Because in the temple he saw the sin and the solemn assembly. And you know what? That's a perfect picture of hypocrisy. Outwardly you assemble. You perform the rituals. You adhere to the rules. You follow the religion. But inwardly in your heart you're not right. There's no desire for intimacy. There's no genuine faith. There's no relationship. So that all outward with no inward is hypocrisy. Do you see that? And that's why Jesus cleans house. I want you to see another one. Why does Jesus do this? Can we turn to the next slide, please? We see that the temple was being profiteered upon. Let's look in verse 13. My house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. You see, at the temple, there was a scam going on. Did you know that? There was a racket in God's house, an in-house racket. Okay, And here's how it worked. All of these Jews were coming from every country to attend and participate in the Passover sacrifice. And many of them did not bring that prescribed lamb to the sacrifice because they were so far away, right? They couldn't bring a lamb from Parthia. It would have died by the time they got there, right? So they would purchase one from the temple sellers. And these sellers would charge them 10 times the value of the animal. Have you ever felt being cheated. I go to Disneyland. I love Disneyland, right? But when I want to get a, a bottle of water, right, it costs $5. Oh my gosh, right? When I go to get a banana, just a banana, something that costs 25 cents at Walmart or whatever, when I, it's $5, right? Right? When I'm hungry and I get a turkey leg, right, it costs just as much as if I went to a Korean barbecue and ate all you can eat. It's, it's, it's impossible. And so here, I'm thinking to myself, every time I go, and my wife knows this, I always say this, right? I always say, they're making so much money. Have you ever felt that way? They're making so much money. And what I mean by that is they are making so much money off of me, right? And that's exactly what was happening, right? But Disneyland is a place of business, right? We, we allow that, even though, you know, it does get us a little bit upset. We allow it because it's a place of business. Think about this. This was happening in the temple. Okay. So, you would pay 10 times the value of the animal, but you couldn't pay for it, listen, with foreign currency. You had to change to the temple coin. They wouldn't allow Parthians to use Parthian coin, so you had to change it to the temple coin, and you would be charged 25% interest, okay? So, it's like the DMV, right? You go to line one, you exchange your currency for temple money, which they charge you 25% interest, then you go to line two with that temple money, and you go and pay 10 times the value for a temple lamb, right? That's a scam. And here, they were getting rich off of it. You might say, well, forget this scam, right? I'm a local guy. I'm going to bring my own lamb, right? And so here, you bring your best one without blemish, without spot, right? You know it's perfect. You get in line for sacrifice, and then a priest who is an official lamb inspector, all right? Did you know they had those back then? a lamb inspector, would come and say, oh, you have a blemished lamb here. And you would say, what are you talking about? This is without blemish. This is my best lamb. This is the one. And they're like, well, I mean, I'm an inspector. I've been trained. What you can't see, I can see, right? And you have a blemished one, so I have to fail you. So you're like, well, what am I supposed to do? Well, leave that lamb here, 
and I want you to go and I want you to buy an approved lamb from one of the lamb sellers, right? One of the temple sellers. And you ask, well, which one do I go to? He say, it doesn't matter because those are all my cousins and brothers. They're all related to each other. Do you get what's happening here? Imagine how jaded a worshiper must have felt. Here, God's house was being misinterpreted. The temple was a place of worship, genuine worship. It was a place where honest inquiry could be made. But the priests were taking advantage of them. And this was the reason why Jesus was so angry and why he threw them all out. Here, Jesus cleans house. I want you to see a third one. Could we see the third one? The temple was being perverted. Perverted means having been distorted from its original course, meaning, purpose, or state. Let's look in verse 13. And Jesus said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer. Well, that begs the question, where was it written? What is Jesus referring to? I want you to see another prophet. Can we put it up? The prophet Isaiah. I love these fulfillments of prophecy. Here's what Isaiah says. These I will bring to my holy mountain. Who are the these? They're the Gentiles. These Gentiles I will bring to my holy mountain and will give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So at the temple, in God's house, guess what? The outer courts where this commercial circus was happening, this was what we call the court of the Gentiles. It was this, the space that was set aside for the nations. God had commissioned this area for Gentile converts to enter in and to worship him. And Isaiah's prophecy was still to come. Messiah would fulfill God the Father's desire to bring the nations into a right relationship with him. And so the reason why Jesus is so angry was that the original purpose for this space was being perverted. It was distorted from its intended use. You see, the Jews were blessed to be a blessing. Genesis 22:18, the Abrahamic covenant says that in your seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Their responsibility was to be a light to the Gentiles. But you see what's happening here? The invasion of this space by sellers and money changers proved that the religious system didn't care if Gentiles had a place to connect to God. And so Jesus cleans house. Can I get an amen? So by now you're thinking, okay, and maybe you're thinking in your, in your head, well, that's a nice history lesson, Pastor Dave, right? I learned a lot of facts in this Bible story, right? You're always so good with the facts. Thank you. But you're thinking to yourself, how does this apply to me? Sure, I can agree that Jesus has the authority to cleanse the temple. Amen. He's the refiner's fire, right? Amen. He's launderer's soap, right? But there's no more temple. There's no, there's no lamb sacrifices. There are no money changers. There's no high priest. So how is any of this practical to me. How many of you, you'd be brave enough to say that's what you're thinking? Would you raise your hand? Okay, just a few. I know all of you are thinking this, okay? And if you're thinking this, you're in trouble. You asked for it, okay? Let's look in John chapter 2, verse 14, and I want you to get this, okay? Did I ha do I have that up? Okay, great, okay. Look at this. When Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the others sitting at the tables exchanging money. So he made a whip of cords and drove them all out from the temple courts. You might say, well, we just read this in Matthew, didn't we? I mean, isn't it the same story? Isn't, you know, that we study? No, it's not. This was Jesus' first cleaning. Did you know there were two cleanings in the temple? Jesus cleansed the temple when he first began his ministry to show that he was Messiah. 
And then Jesus cleansed the temple again when he ended his ministry. And that's what we just studied to show that he was Messiah. Okay? So, in verse 18, it's his first cleansing. So, in verse 18, look at this. The Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? I want you to notice that Jesus causes a scene in the beginning of his ministry, and the, and, and, and the religious leaders are not ready to arrest him, okay? If you were to come into this church and throw, you know, things and drive people out, you know, maybe we'd have you arrested, maybe not, but, you know, something would happen, right? But here the Jews aren't doing anything. They're not doing anything. You know why? Because they don't know who he is yet. Maybe he's crazy, or maybe he's the Messiah. We don't know. And so you know what they do? They test him. And they say this, because they know Malachi 3. They know the Messiah is going to suddenly come to his temple, and they don't want to mess with him if he's the Messiah. So you know what they say? Hey, show me a sign. Show us the sign that you have the authority to do all this. And I love this. Verse 19, look at it. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Do you know how earth-shaking this passage is? Do you know how game-changing this verse is? I get goosebumps all over because when I understood this, it was powerful to me. Jesus is saying, when I die on the cross and rise again in three days, the temple will no longer be a necessity. The temple will have completed its work. You see, the temple job was to point to me. All the sacrifices performed in the temple, all the offerings given in the temple, all the prescriptions followed in the temple, all the rituals obeyed in the temple, all the pictures foreshadowed in the temple, all the furniture displayed in the temple, all of it points to me and to my work. All of it is a fulfillment of my coming. Amen? So that when you see me, you see the presence of God. When you look at me, you see the Shekinah, the glory of God. You see, they asked him, by what authority do you do this? And Jesus says, I have the authority because I am the temple. Can, you get, can I get an amen? Yeah? yeah? Are you getting it? I am the long-awaited, long-prophesied temple 2.0. That's what he says he was. I am the new covenant temple. I ripped the veil of the Holy of Holies so that there's no separation between God and man. I break the dividing walls of the court of the Gentiles from the place of the Jews so that there's no barrier. We're all in Christ, right? My presence ushers you into the very throne room of God, and you have complete and direct access to boldly come to the throne of grace. Destroy this temple, and I will raise up a new temple in three days. That's what Jesus was saying. But he doesn't stop there. You know what Jesus says in the rest of the epistles as we look, look at in the rest of the New Testament? He says, I am the temple, and if you are in me and I am in you, guess what? You are the temple. Whoa, can I get an amen? Yeah? You guys are so quiet, okay? You are the temple. I think of Oprah, right? You get a temple, and you get a temple, and you get a temple. We all get temples. Because that's exactly the plan of God the Father from the beginning. That is what Jesus came to do. 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. And many times we forget that Jesus and the temple is talking about us. It's talking about us. This is 
a dumb illustration. I thought of it this morning. I didn't know if it would work. I kind of did it in children's ministry, and they said it was pretty good. Okay, so I'm going to share it with you, okay? When I was a kid, right, we had one family phone, okay? And it was uh, in the middle of our living room, okay? A family phone. I'm sure my parents had a phone in their room, but, but I remember this one family phone as a kid. It was a rotary phone, okay? And it was tethered right there in the living room. And so if a call came and the rings came, if you didn't get to that phone fast enough, you missed that call, right? If, and, and, and if you wanted to have some privacy, right, you had that long kind of cord. You, some of you don't know what I'm talking about. You would have to run somewhere and just stretch that cord because it was tethered there. You couldn't use it, right? As a kid, I never expected what I see today, right? Apple, Samsung, everybody's got a phone, right? Every kid even has a phone, right? Everyone is mobile. Uh, from a stationary phone to now, everybody has a mobile phone. And that's what I think of. The temple was that stationary place. It was where the presence of God resided. But you know, the new covenant, Jesus said, no, I'm going to make a bunch of mobile temples. In me, we're going to have millions of mobile temples all around, okay? And when those temples come in groups of 10 or 100 or 1,000, they form the church, amen? Because the church is not a building. Let's remember that. The church is not a building. The church is a bunch of temples coming together to worship, coming together to serve the Lord God. And so that's who we are today. We are all the temples of God. And so here's my question, and it begs this question, all right? Does Jesus have a right to cleanse your temple? Millennial, I'm asking you this question. Does Jesus have a right to cleanse your mobile temple? Right? Gen Xer, Gen Yer, you know? Does Jesus have a right? Because you said amen to, yeah, Jesus has a right to cleanse the temple, right? But now we're getting personal here. Does Jesus have a right to cleanse your temple? Do we need a house cleaning this morning? Today, is your temple profaned? Are you struggling with hypocrisy? Where you follow the outside rules and rituals, but there's no vibrancy on the inside. There's no passion for Jesus like you used to have. Revelation said to the church of Ephesus, you're doing everything right, but the one thing I have against you is you have lost your first love. You've abandoned and departed that vibrancy, that love for me. And Jesus says, repent and go back to the beginning. Go back to the first. You know a way that we can tell if we are living a life of hypocrisy? What's your prayer life like today? Prayer is not a ritual. Prayer is a relationship. It's talking to God. Do you spend time talking to God? I'm not saying, can you come up here and lead everybody in a word of prayer right, be, right before lunch? I'm not saying that. I'm saying in your daily life, do you have a time of communing with God? Are you a house of prayer? Let me ask you, Bible study, reading the Bible. Again, it's not a ritual. It's actually a relationship. Are you listening to God daily? The Bible is a love letter to us. Amen? I've said it many times. It's a love letter. Are you soaking up what God in love is telling you today? Are you spending time in prayer and Bible study? You see, that's an indicator if your temple is being profaned. Not only that, are you profiteering your temple today? Are you struggling with addictions? Are you struggling with sinful habits that rob you of the righteousness that you so need in the Christian life? Are you tempted to take advantage of God's grace by not repenting of sins that you've kept hidden in your heart? On the outward, it may not show, but you and God know what's on the inward. 
And do you need to get that right with the Lord? Are you profiteering your temple? Are you perverting your temple? Are you living out a gospel calling? You know, we were never meant to live in a bubble. Jesus says that we are a city on a hill and that our lights should shine before men that they may see us, right? But just like the priest that filled up the space that was meant to reach the Gentiles, they filled it up with distractions. So too, we're tempted to fill up our space with everything else but reaching the people around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about that. We become exclusive to our family and to our friends. And we get to a point where we don't want to really live out the light that we were meant to. We are supposed to be a blessing. We're blessed to be a blessing. So are you committing to living out the Great Commission? Are you in discipleship? Are you being discipled or are you discipling? Maybe right now you need a mentor or maybe you need to be mentored, right? Maybe you need to minister in the many things that are out there. You know, we just shared with you crew. We could share with you what the stuff we're doing at our church. There's so many Christian organizations that you can minister with. Now, again, I'm not talking religion. I'm not talking legalistic, you know, do's and don'ts, rules and rituals. I'm not talking that. I'm talking about your daily relationship with God. Is it really alive? Is your temple being used the right way? You see, when we allow Jesus to clean our temples, I don't have time to go. I'd probably have to spend another hour if, if I continued with the passage. But let me just share this with you. You can take, take notes and write it down. When we allow Jesus to clean our temples, number one, there's healing, verse 14. And number two, Jesus is glorified, verses 15 through 16. Just bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. All of you are the temples of God, if you know Jesus, if you are connected to him as the true temple. And so in the quietness of your own heart, where the Holy Spirit resides, let me ask, do you need a cleaning today? Is God wanting to cleanse those things that hold you back from living out what God wants you to Father, we ask that this time would be a time of searching, and Lord, a time where we would allow you to do your Holy Spirit work in us. And we pray, Lord, that you would heal us where we need to be healed, and that you would lift Jesus Christ up in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. I'd like to do this uh, really quick. I want to spend about two, no, about three to five minutes if you can break up into those same groups that, that, that you kind of shared the first thing with, if you could just break up with them and just pray for one another. The beautiful thing about this is we are temples of God, but we're also priests, each one of us. And as we get together as the mobile temple of God, as we commune with one another, we can pray for one another. We can make this a house of prayer. So if we could, let's just break up for about five minutes in the groups of threes and fours. And can we just pray for each other? Whatever the Lord lays on your heart, if you could just share it, you know, it's a short amount of time, but I think it'll be profitable for us spiritually to be able to end our service really praying for one another. Let's, this, let, let's let this be a house of prayer, amen? All right, let's break up real quick and share prayer requests and just pray for one another, would you?